Hey, hey everybody, and welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is uh, Saturday, sixteenth uh, of December, two thousand twenty-three. My name is Johan, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Sweden, and I will be your host for today's study. We also have a bunch of co-hosts here. Uh, we got Nancy, Nancy J. Harland G, well, and uh, we got Audrey, so thank you for your service, and Sue L, thank you. And uh, if you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. The chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the question and answer ses session. Please note that the speaker Harland G will be recorded <coughs> for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session, which follows, will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, please turn off your video if you're exercising, eating, or if you need to, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to our seventh tradition. The money goes toward the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we also send contributions to our intergroup and WSO. We will post a link to the previous week's recordings. Those are available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat box. So, ladies and gentlemen, here he is, the man, the concept, the myth, the legend, Harlan D. Take it away. Thank you. Thank you, Johan. Thank you very, very much. I'm really glad to be here. And just so you guys can eat your hearts out, it's going to be 80 degrees here today in Scottsdale, Phoenix area. And it's very sunny and very, very beautiful. So you guys can definitely eat your hearts out. No, uh, in the summertime is when you get your revenge. That's for sure. Um, but I'm real glad to be here today. I hope uh, I hope you are too, and I want to thank you for coming. I also want to thank everybody who does service to make this possible. Last week, I posed a question to you. Did you want me to do Dr. Bob's Nightmare, or did you want me to go to the beginning of the book? And overwhelmingly, you said, let's do Dr. Bob's Nightmare. Before we go to Dr. Bob's nightmare, as is my want, as is my procedure, I want to just kind of run up to it a little bit. Dr. Bob Smith, Dr. Robert Holbrook Smith was a proctologist. He was a surgeon physician in Akron, Ohio, and he was born on the 8th of August, 1879, which makes him 16 years older than Bill. He is 16 years older. Bill was born in 1895. He is born in 1879. Coincidentally, is it odd or is it God? They are both born in Vermont. I don't know how many of us knew that, but both Bob and Bill were born in Vermont. Dr. Bob was born in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, in a very small town in Vermont. And uh, they both uh, were very instrumental. And as I've said before, when you think of Dr. Bob and you think of Bill, among other people as well, Roseanne could be in this category. Uh, Hank Parkhurst could be in this category. Clearly, uh, Leah and Melanie from A Vision for You could be in this category. The sun never sets on the service that they did for the world the sun will never set and that there will be generations into the, into the future that will benefit from the work that was done by Bill and Bob. But let's take a look before we begin the story that Dr. Bob really became the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous by default. Uh, could Ebby Thatcher have made a much more valid claim to be the co-founder of AA. You bet your life he could, because without Ebby Thatcher, there would not be an AA. Now that could also be said for Dr. Bob, but without Ebby Thatcher, there is definitely no AA, because without Ebby, Bill would never have gotten the message of the recovery. Now, Bob, or excuse me, Bill Wilson had the information 
on the uh, disease. He got that from Silkworth. Silkworth taught Bill that it is a disease of the mind and a disease of the body, that the mind is, is, is full of restlessness, irritability, and discontent, throw in angry and scared to death and fearful and full of all kinds of dread, all kinds of catastrophizing thoughts. When we're not eating, when we're not drinking, our minds go to a worst case scenario. Our minds are constantly fettered by all these kinds of things that, that plague us and we just don't feel quite right. We sort of look at the world through a fence, through a window, and we see the world going past and we see people loving and laughing and walking and we see them, but we don't always feel, we don't ever feel a part of that. We feel apart from rather than a part of. And when something happens in the brain, like what happens when I eat a chocolate turtle, when I eat an Oreo cookie, when I eat God knows what, Captain Crunch or pizza, when I eat these things, I get what Dr. Silkworth calls the effect. And the, that effect is the instant sense of ease and comfort that comes upon me from eating these things. And for about nine seconds, I feel fantastic. I feel like the world is my little oyster. I feel the way I think others feel all the time. And that feeling is so elusive. It's called the effect. It's so elusive that I will often chase that feeling until the gates of insanity or death. And I also from Silkworth find out, or Bill does, that we have a physical allergy to these foods, that something happens allergically. And when we talk about allergy, this confused me for a very long time because people would say to me, don't eat uh, Kit Kat bars, you're allergic to them. And I'd say, that's that's not possible. What do you mean I'm allergic to Kit Kat bars? I'm eating 40 of them a day. I'm not breaking out in a rash. I'm not breaking out in hives. I'm not, I don't have itchy, watery eyes because I ate a Kit Kat bar and they couldn't explain it to me in OA. So I went to a source of information that many of you remember, some of you don't, some of you are young. It's called a dictionary. And if you don't know what a dictionary is, you can look it up in, in on your phone. You can look it up online. What is a dictionary? So I went to this dictionary and I looked up this word allergy and I found many definitions for it. And one of them fit me exactly correctly. And it said that the definition of an allergy is an adverse abnormal reaction to a food, beverage, or substance. Adverse means it's harmful. Abnormal means that I'm reacting in a way that most people do not react. And so I looked at my reaction to food, particularly the foods I like, you know, Captain Crunch and Chips Ahoy and, uh, you know, candies and that kind of thing. And when my friends go out to eat and they eat some of these things, the more of those things they eat, the less of those things they want. They get all the food every time they go out to eat. And when I eat these things, when I eat these foods, the more of them I eat, the more of them I want. The more of them I want, the more of them I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, and it's just endless. Now, Ebby Thatcher came along in November of 1934, and he showed Bill and told Bill, but showed him, he showed Bill that he didn't know the problem, but he knew the solution to the problem. And he was practicing the six steps. The word step really wasn't used in the Oxford group. It was the six tenets of the Oxford group movement. And the six tenets of the Oxford group movement were being practiced by Ebby. And they are complete deflation, 
Uh, I'm getting this from page 263. So if you're if you're thinking you're going to ask me to repeat them, you can later on. But I'm taking these from page 263. Complete deflation, dependence and guidance from a higher power, moral inventory, confession, restitution, and continued work with other alcoholics. Now they didn't use, they didn't really have continued work with alcoholics. They would say, you must go give testimony. And what going to give testimony meant was you had to go out from the Oxford group and tell someone else what God, what Jesus had done for you. And these were not people that were concerned about sobriety. These were people that were practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. And that's what they were concerned with. But they had their four absolutes. And the four absolutes of the Oxford group are were absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. And so by practicing the tenets of the Oxford group and striving toward those absolutes, Ebby was able to stay sober for two months of his life for the first time in his adult life. He had never as an adult come to New York sober. He had never in his life as an adult stayed sober anything like two months. So these were the things that Ebby brought to Bill. Could Ebby be considered a co-founder? You bet. But by September of 1935, Ebby was drinking again. So he was drunk. And so he couldn't exactly be considered a co-founder. Now, Sam Shoemaker who was the Episcopal minister, who was the rector at the Calvary Mission, and he was the lead man, lead person for the Oxford Group movement in America, he gave Bill his four impediments to recovery. And the four impediments are a resentment that you will not let go of, a secret you will not tell, a harmful thrill that you will not stop and a restitution that you will not make. And I know somebody will post that in the chat because we've gone through that a million times, but that is where steps four through nine come from are these four um, impediments that Dr. that uh, Sam Shoemaker speaks, spoke of very, very often. Could he be considered a co-founder of AA? Yes, but he wasn't an alcoholic. Now, what about Hank Parkhurst? Hank Parkhurst was instrumental in the writing and the uh, printing of this book. We owe Hank the debt of gratitude that the book is owned and printed by Alcoholics Anonymous, because when um, they offered Bill $1,500, to publish the big book, he was ready to jump on it. He was desperate for money. And Parkhurst told Bill, if they're willing to give us 1500, it must be worth much, much more. And Hank wrote the chapter to employers and Hank was instrumental in Overeaters Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous printing their own book. Because if you give it to a publisher, they can discontinue it they can change it, they can edit it, they can do anything they want to that book, and you haven't got a thing to say about it. So could Hank Parkhurst be considered a co-founder of AA? You bet he could. However, by September of 1939, just six months or five months after the book was published, Hank was drunk. He was going through a divorce with his wife, Kathleen, and he wanted to run away with Ruth Hawk. And when she resisted his nuances, he assumed that Bill Wilson was going to run off with her. Even though Bill and Hank were both married, Hank was married to Kathleen and they eventually divorced. And Bill was married to Lois and they never did get divorced, although they had some 
rocky road ahead, rocky roads ahead in their marriage to each other. They definitely had rocky roads, but they never did get divorced. Bill ended up leaving 10% of the royalties of this book to one of his uh, lady friends named Helen Wynne. And, and Bill had his lady friends from time to time, but Bill Wilson was a great man, but he was very, very human. So could, could, um, could Parkhurst be considered a co-founder of AA? You bet he could. Now, again, the word co-founder, the term co-founder, the idea of a co-founder really wasn't bantered around until around the 1940s. Nobody really in the moment of the, of the late 30s, mid to late 30s, considered Bob a co-founder. They considered him just the point man in Ohio, in Akron, because Bill and Bob had a very special relationship. But could Sam Shoemaker, Hank Parkhurst, Ebby Thatcher, could they have been considered uh, co-founders of AA? You bet they could have. What about somebody that we tend to overlook sometimes? Could he be considered? And his name was Dr. Silkworth, Dr. William Duncan Silkworth, because without Dr. Silkworth, there's no program, there's no book, there's no nothing, because Dr. Silkworth, he gave Bill the problem as he saw it. With no scientific backing, he couldn't prove the allergy. Yale University in their alcoholic studies program during the 50s and 60s proved Dr. Silkworth's, um, Dr. Silkworth's uh, uh, theories, but Dr. Silkworth could not prove it. He just had this theory of a mental twist and an a physical allergy. But Silkworth was extremely influential, in, in, not just influential, he was extremely vital, that's a better word, vital to the formation of this. Remember, if you took the doctor's opinion that a lot of people affectionately call the doc op, but if you call, take the doc op or the doctor's opinion out of the book, there's no, it doesn't make any sense because you have no basis of understanding what the problem is. So could Silkworth have been considered a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous? You bet your life he could. Now there's one more person that was with Bill from the very, very beginning of all of this. And this person could be considered a co-founder of AA, and I consider this person to be as instrumental in any of it as anyone else, and her name was Lois Burnham Wilson. Lois was with him from the very beginning, and she cleaned up his piss and his vomit, and she looked after him, and she nursed him through many, many hundreds and hundreds of hangovers, and Lois Wilson she was, she kept him going. And, you know, he would come home. Uh, the famous story, I've told this story in here many times. He would, he came home in March of 1935. And he was extremely discouraged, just extremely discouraged. And he said to Lois, Lois, uh, this doesn't work. I, I got this, I have this feeling, I believe is from God. And, and, you know, God is telling me that I can, I'm supposed to sober up drunks and, and, and nobody's getting sober. So she turned to him and changed the world forever when she said, but you're staying sober. So this is a critical moment. If she would have said to him, yeah, you're right. Don't try to sober up anybody. It's a waste of time. Just stay sober yourself. He would have gotten drunk eventually, and we wouldn't be here today. Could Lois Wilson have been considered a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous? And I resoundingly say, yes, yes, and yes, she could have. And there's a couple of more people. Uh, Jimmy Burwell. Jimmy Burwell is the resident atheist. Now, we read in Bill's story that Ebby said to Bill, why don't you choose your own conception of God? But as I've told you here before, he never said that. 
He never said that. He was coming out of the Oxford group and the Oxford group were people that were practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. Ebby never said that. And he said many times during his life that Bill's account of that night is not his recollection of that night. Now, when Bill started in the 60s, 50s and 60s, Bill started supporting Ebby financially. So Ebby sort of got in line with, oh yeah, that's what happened. Oh yeah, I said this and I said that. But in Mel B's book, Ebby, uh, and in other, other publications, Ebby gives a very different account of that night. And if you read the writing of the big book by Shaberg, Ebby's account is in that book and Ebby does not corroborate what Bill is saying in the famous bedtime story, the bedtime story. So the bedtime story is the story of Bill, excuse, yeah, Bill and Ebby at the kitchen table and all that. And then eventually it says, I, I, uh, I, he said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And Ebby never said that, but Jimmy Burwell did because Jimmy Burwell was an atheist. He was a very good friend of Fitz Mayo. And Fitz Mayo was one of the first people to get sober in New York. But Jimmy Burwell made it very possible for all of us to be here this morning. We've got about 130 people here this morning. And we're different religions, we're different races, we're different creeds, we're different colors, we we come from different countries. But, you know, Jimmy Burwell, being the atheist that he was, he power drove this idea of God as you understand God, but he didn't really want God in the book. He wanted it just to be like a psychological book, but that's not what happened. He wanted it, God as you understand God. And Jimmy Burwell, he was a power driver on this. He was an atheist. You know, at first they didn't want him to succeed. They couldn't stand him. He was he was an atheist and they didn't like that and you know, so on and so forth. He did get drunk, Jimmy Burwell, but then he got sober never to have drunk again. Could Jimmy Burwell have been a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous? And I resoundingly say, yes, he could. Yes, he could, because he power drove so many things about God and higher power home that we rely on today as being part of the woodwork, as being part of the landscape that we need. I'm a different religion than many of you. You are a different religion than the person, you know, next to you on, on these little squares here. So we don't know, but it's, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of when all of us can come together. And Jimmy Burwell, he was very instrumental in that. One last person that I will mention here uh, that could be considered a co-founder of AA, and that is Bill Dotson. Bill Dotson was a bastion of service, of sobriety, of humility. He never ran around saying, I'm the first guy that these guys got sober. And when they started working together, I was the first one. He never did that. So could he be considered because, you know, J Bill Dotson proved, yes, this could work because Dr. Bob maybe was a fluke. Maybe it was a fluke that Dr. Bob got sober, you know, using the things that Bill said. But when Bill Dotson got sober in June of 1935, just weeks after Dr. Bob got sober, it was a proven fact that this could work. So you have a lot of players who could have been or should have been, see, for my money, Hank Parkhurst or Ebby should have been the co-founder, but they got drunk. They got drunk. Jimmy Burwell, he had his problems. Uh, you know, so by default, Dr. Bob became the co-founder. So, and he, he was very human and we're going to examine him in his life, not just today, but we're going to be doing it for a few weeks because this is a longer story than I can cover in just a, a day. So we're going to go to page 171. 
171. And we're going to start Dr. Bob's nightmare today. Let's see how far we get. And I'll do the very best I can to give you history. A lot of this, especially at the beginning, is very, very straightforward. There's nothing for me to add or take away or explain. A lot of this is extremely straightforward. Bill's story is more open to certain interpretations than Bob's. Bob's is a lot more straightforward. But let's see how far we get. A co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, the birth of our society dates from his first day of permanent sobriety, June the 10th, 1935. Now, I don't know that this matters, but it was actually June the 17th, because if you go to your Google and you look up the American Medical Association Convention for 1935, it started on the 10th, so he could not have been home on the 10th. But that's okay. We're just going to leave it alone. Bill and Bob were not great, reliable sources for dates and sometimes facts. Bill was more interested in making the point than getting it right. He was more interested in your sobriety and telling you what he thought you needed to hear for you to get sober than he was interested in getting it right, getting it factually correct. In to 1950, the year of his death, he carried the AA message to more than 5,000 alcoholic men and women. And to all these, he gave his medical services without thought of charge. In this, in this prodigy of service, he was well assisted by Sister Ignatia at St. Thomas Hospital in Akron, Ohio, one of the greatest friends our fellowship will ever know. And Sister Ignatia was right at Bob's side when he ministered to these people, cleaned up their vomit and so on, strapped them down. And she is also where we get the idea of chips. She gave chips out for different sobriety that you would keep in your pocket as a reminder to stay sober. And in the early, early days, if you drank, you had to give back your chip. So Sister Ignatia was very instrumental. And I have prayed in the chapel at Akron City Hospital in the Sister Ignatia Chapel. I have prayed in there and it's on Dr. Bob Way. So the hospital, the street has one of those vanity streets. It has an official street name but it also says Dr. Bob Way. And we ate in the cafeteria where I'm sure Bill and Bob shared many a meal or many a, cu a cup of coffee. And there was a big book meeting going on in the hospital at the same time that we were touring it. And um, that had to be a throwback to one of the earliest, earliest meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, but they meet in that hospital. So that was pretty cool. It's sort of like taking a tour of um, things related to the Ten Commandments, and you're actually standing on Mount Sinai. It's it's really tantamount to that. Or jumping into the Red Sea, and all of a sudden it splits into twelve equal paths, so you can walk right across. It's 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 kind of uh, paramount to that. But anyway. We're going to continue. I was born in a small New England village of about 7,000 souls. This again is the 8th of August, 1879, St. Johnsbury, Vermont. The general moral standard was, as I recall it, far above the average. No beer or liquor was sold in the neighborhood, except at the state liquor agency, where perhaps one might procure a pint if he could convince the agent that he really needed it. Without this proof of the expectant, without this proof, the expectant purchaser would be forced to depart empty-handed. With none of what I later came to believe was the great panacea for all human ills. In other words, He's talking about liquor, alcohol. Men who had liquor shipped in from Boston or New York by express were looked upon with great distrust and disfavor by most of the good townspeople. 
The town was well supplied with churches and schools in which I pursued my early educational activities. Typical kid, but he's alcoholic. My father was a professional man of recognized ability and both my father and mother were most active in church affairs. These were religious people, the Smiths. Both father and mother were considerably above the average in intelligence. Unfortunately for me, I was the only child, I'm an only child too, which perhaps engendered the selfishness which played such an important part in bringing on my alcoholism. I'm selfish by nature. If I've learned anything about myself from my inventories, I'm selfish, I'm self-seeking, I'm dishonest, and I'm afraid, and I'm angry, and I'm all those things. But the biggest driver of me is the selfishness and the fear, the selfishness and the fear. And this is what I've learned from all my inventory. So I have to be very careful, very careful, because they can manifest and they can really hurt me. From childhood through high school, I was more or less forced to go to church, Sunday school and evening service, Monday night Christian endeavor, and sometimes to Wednesday evening prayer meeting. This had the effect of making me resolve that when I was free from parental domination, I would never again darken the doors of a church. This resolution I kept steadfastly for the next 40 years except when circumstances made it seem unwise to absent myself. So in other words, he felt that he had an overdose of religious education, as Fitz Mayo writes in his story. He too had a lot of religious education. He was far more religious than Bill, far more educated in, in Bible and things than Bill Wilson. But at the time that they met, Bill was sober, and Bob was drunk. After high school came four years in one of the best colleges in the country where drinking seemed to be a major extracurricular activity. This would be Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Dartmouth is where Dr. Bob attended his undergrad work. Dartmouth is considered an Ivy League school. You don't get in there because you're a bum. You get in there if you're considered a very good student. He made it in. And Dartmouth College is located in the next state over from Vermont in New Hampshire. And this is where he did his undergrad work is in Dartmouth. Almost and the, uh, the fraternity, oh, well, let's, almost everyone, uh, uh, drinking seemed to be a major extracurricular activity. Almost everyone seemed to do it. I did more, I did it more and more and had lots of fun without much grief, either physical or financial. I seemed to be able to snap back the next morning better than most of my fellow drinkers who were cursed or perhaps blessed with a great deal of morning after nausea. Never once in my life have I had a headache, which, which, fact, which fact leads me to believe that I was an alcoholic almost from the start. I would believe he was from the start. My whole life seemed to be centered around doing what I wanted to do without regards for the rights, wishes, or privileges of anyone else, a state of mind which became more and more predominant as the years passed. That I was graduated summa cum laude in the eyes of the drinking fraternity, but not in the eyes of the dean. This isn't a drinking fraternity, but the fraternity that Dr. Bob was a part of when he was at Dartmouth is Kappa Kappa Kappa. Kappa 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 is a fraternity. He was a member of it at Dartmouth, but uh, that's, you know, and that was a big source of his socialization. They had a dance, and at, a, at, at that dance, he met Anne, and Anne became his wife later on. That is where he met Anne. He met her uh, at a dance at Dartmouth given by Kappa, Kappa, Kappa. I'm at the bottom of 172. The next three years I spent in Boston, Chicago, and Montreal in the employ of large manufacturing concerns selling railway supplies, gas engines of all sorts, and many other items of heavy hardware. During these years, I drank as much as my purse permitted, still without paying too, a, a great penalty. Although I was beginning to have morning jitters at times, I lost only a half a day's work during these three years. And this was in 
Chicago, Boston, Montreal, he would travel around. They would sell locomotives. They would sell these big engines. When he says heavy hardware, he's not kidding. Huge, huge purchases, huge hardware. My, I'm, at, I'm, in one, well, I'm at 173. My next move was to take up stu the study of medicine. Now, this is uh, the University of Michigan. He attended the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. One of the largest undergrad and one of the largest universities is the University of Michigan. My next move was to take up the study of medicine, entering one of the largest universities in the country. There I took up the business of drinking with much greater earnestness than I had previously shown. In other words, what is he telling us here? The disease is progressive, permanent, and fatal. Permanent, fatal. My friend Craig in, in uh, Oklahoma says permanent, progressive, and fatal. But it's permanent, progressive, and fatal if not treated. So we see here in, in Dr. Bob's story that his drinking is getting worse never better. And that is the case with me as well. On account of my enormous capacity for beer, I was elected to membership in one of the drinking societies and soon became one of his, its leading spirits. Many mornings I have gone to classes and even though fully prepared, would turn and walk back to the fraternity house because of my jitters, not daring to enter the classroom for fear of making a scene that I should be called upon, a called on for recitation. So he had to go back to the dormitory. Now, if you remember in Bill's story, he was taking a night law course and he nearly failed one of his classes because he was too drunk to think or write. So what we have here is liquor is starting to dominate Bob's life. Liquor is starting to make his decisions for him. It is dictating who he can be, who he cannot be, where he can go, where he cannot go. And this is exactly what happened in my life. My obesity started when I was a young, young child, three, four years old, five years old, six years old. By the time I was 10, by the time I was 15, I was so out of control, it wasn't even funny. I don't have memories of my father where he wasn't smoking. I don't have memories of myself where weight and food were not the topics du jour, the topics of the day. Everything in my life centered around my being fat, and my wanting to eat. And so this became a very horrible, horrible nightmare for me from a very young age on. And Dr. Bob, his alcoholism is starting to take control of his life. 173. This went from bad to worse. In other words, it's a progressive disease until sophomore spring, when after a prolonged period of drinking, I made up my mind that I could not complete my course. So I packed my grip, a grip is a suitcase, and went south to spend a month on a large farm owned by a friend of mine. In other words, he's doing what I did. He gave up. I was a quitter. I was a quitter. My best friend in the whole world does crossword puzzles all the time and all kinds of jumbles and crossword puzzles. And that was never me because I could never stick to anything like that. I would look at it, but it didn't come to me in one second. I would just push it away. I would just push it away. I, I didn't have any perseverance. And this person was telling me a story one time. Well, this is going back months. They were telling me a story of a teacher that they had. And this teacher convinced this person that if they just stuck to it, that everything would be okay. And for some reason, I needed to hear that because in my whole life, my whole 69-year-old life, I never really gave anything much of an effort. The only thing I gave a lot of effort to was making sure that I put as many Doritos in my stomach as was possible. I was, I was hoarding Doritos in my stomach in case the world ran out. 
But other than that, so this person taught me <clears throat> an extremely valuable lesson. What this person taught me was you have to stick to things and you have to forge through things in order to feel really good. And when this person gets done with a crossword puzzle or a number puzzle or a, a, a jumble or whatever that may be, they give themselves a star. And that's how this person starts their day. And I thought to myself, how absurdly great is that? How unbelievably great is that? So I started doing it. And I'm not as good at it as this other human being. But the bottom line is, when I finish one of these things, even though there's, I'm not making any money doing a crossword puzzle, I'm not making any money doing a jumble or anything else or any kind of puzzle, it feels good to know I hung in there. It feels really different to know I hung in there. And the one thing I can say to you, I've worked my butt off. I've worked my butt off on my recovery. I've done everything I could do over the last quarter of a century to put myself in a position where I can say I am in recovery today. And so that has been something I have stuck with, but I'm learning perseverance. And this person seems to be my teacher when it comes to certain things to persevere. And that to me means the world. Okay. I packed my grip and went south to spend a month on a large farm owned by a friend of mine. In other words, he's not going to try to forge through it. When I got the fog out of my brain, I decided that quitting school was very foolish and that I had better return and continue my work. When I reached school, I discovered the faculty had other ideas on the subject. After much argument, they allowed me to return and take my exams, all of which I passed credibly but they were much disgusted and told me they would attempt to struggle along without my presence. After many painful discussions, they finally gave me my credits and I migrated to another of the leading universities in the country, of the, in other universities of the country and entered as a junior that fall. There my drinking became so much worse that the boys in the fraternity house where I live forced to send forced to send for my father, who made a long journey in the vain endeavor to get me straightened out. This had very little effect, however, for I kept on drinking and used a great deal more hard liquor than in former years. Now, he's going to enter something that makes God laugh. He is now going to enter rush medical college in Chicago. In Chicago, we had a hospital. It's different now. The name of it is different. It was Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's, but it was a Rush medical college. Now, why is that so funny? Why is that cosmically funny? I'll explain. God has a sense of humor. And when Dr. Bob did his internship at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's, Rush Hospital, and he went to Rush Medical College. That's funny because Dr. Benjamin Rush was the very first Surgeon General of the United States of America. Now, why is that funny? It's funny because in 1790, Dr. Benjamin Rush, the first Surgeon General of the United States, published a paper in which he believed that alcoholism was an illness but he couldn't prove it and he had no remedy for it at all whatsoever. So Benjamin Rush, who Dr. Bob's medical college is named after and the hospital where he did his internship is named after, was a man who in 1790, almost a hundred years before he was born, published a paper in which he believed that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it and he had no remedy for it. So God likes to laugh too. God has a sense of humor too. And if you're quiet enough, as I'm often not, if you're quiet enough, you can see and hear God's humor. 
God loves to laugh. He just absolutely loves to laugh. I'm on page 174, the first full paragraph. Oh, wait. Yeah, no, the second full paragraph. Coming up to final exams, I went on a particularly strenuous spree. When I went in to write the examinations, my hand trembled so I could not hold a pencil. Do you see the parallels where, where Bill is telling you that he, his night law course, he, he was too drunk to think or write and he passed in a bunch of empty exams. I passed in at least three absolutely blank books. I was of course soon on the carpet and the upshot was that I had to go back for two more quarters and remain absolutely dry. Now in those days, they could get involved and tell you not to drink. Today, I don't know that they would tell you that. You're either gonna be in or you're gonna be out, but they're probably not gonna get involved in your personal life like that. A number of years ago, the Ford Motor Company in Detroit, they calculated how much it cost them to develop some of their managers. And they wanted the permission of these managers to install sensors and cameras in their homes and vehicles to make sure that they weren't smoking or taking drugs. And they wouldn't do it. And the Ford Motor Company had a back off. But if you remember the Ford Motor Company just a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they wanted to install sensors and cameras in the vehicles and homes of their executives because they didn't want you keeling over from being drunk. They didn't want you dying of an overdose because they have large investments in each and every one of their executives. And of course that didn't fly. But in Dr. Bob's case, the college, the university was getting involved in his habits. Uh, if I wish to graduate. This I did and proved myself satisfactory to the faculty, both in deportment and scholastically, 174. I conducted myself so credibly that I was able to secure a much coveted internship in a Western city. What Western city is that? That is Akron, Ohio. To a person from New York or a person from Vermont, Akron is in the West. Today, we would call Ohio the Midwest at best. But in those days, you know, not everything was, was as it is today. And that Western city is Akron, Ohio. I was kept so busy that I hardly left the hospital at all. Consequently, I could not get into trouble. When those two years were up, I opened an office downtown. I had some money all the time in the world and considerable stomach trouble. I soon discovered that a couple of drinks would alleviate my gastric distress. He had an extended liver, so and Bob, uh, Bill did too, at least for the next few hours at a time, so it was not difficult for me to return to my former excessive indulgence. By this time, I was beginning to pay very dearly physically and in and in hope of relief, voluntarily incarcerated myself at least a dozen times in one of the local sanitariums. There was really nothing for them to do. They would lock you up, you'd get dry, they'd give you a good talking to, you would agree never to drink again, and often would get drunk that very day on the way home. I was between Skyla and Sharibus. Now, Sharibidus, well, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing Sharibus. Uh, Charabus correctly, but here's what that is. It is a double-headed monster on the Aegean Sea. We're going back to mythology. And if you steer your ship so as to avoid Skyla, you will come under the gun of Charybdis. And if you steer your ship away from Skyla to, uh, to get to, you, you're going to be eaten by Charybdis. If you steer your ship to avoid Charybdis, then you can be eaten by Skyla. So you had to be right down the middle, right down the middle to avoid this double-headed mythical monster. It was the typical rock in a hard place. If you go too far this way, you're going to get eaten by this one. 
If you get too far that way, you're going to get eaten by the other one. You had to be right down the middle. And that was what it was called for. Because if I did, if I did not drink, my stomach tortured me. He needed that drink to take the pain away. If I did, if and if I did, my nerves did the same thing. So he was damned if he drank and damned if he didn't drink. If he drank, he'd get one kind of pain. If he didn't drink, he got another kind of pain. So that was where he was at this time. After three years of this, I wound up in the local hospital where they attempted to help me, but I would get my friends to smuggle me in a court, me a court, or I would steal the alcohol about the building so that I got rapidly worse. Finally, my father had to send a doctor out from my hometown who managed to get me back there in some way. And I was in bed about two months before I could venture out of the house. I stayed about town a couple of months more and then returned to resume my practice. I think I must have been thoroughly scarred, scared by what had happened or by the doctor or probably both so that I did not touch a drink again until the country went dry. And this is prohibition. And this is the Volstead Act, the 18th Amendment to the Constitution prohibited the sale and distribution of alcoholic beverages. It, it prohibited that. With the passing of the 18th Amendment, I felt quite safe. In other words, there's not going to be any liquor around, so I'm going to be okay. Well, let's find out. I knew everyone would buy a few bottles or cases of liquor as their exchequers permitted. An exchequer is your fund. It is your bank account. That's what the exchequer is. And that it would soon be gone. Therefore, it would make no great difference, even if I should do some drinking. At that time, I was not aware of the almost unlimited supply the government made it possible for us doctors to obtain. So doctors could obtain alcohol readily. Neither had I any knowledge of the bootlegger who soon appeared on the horizon. I drank with moderation at first, but it took me only a relatively short time to drift back into the old habits, which had wound up so disastrously before. Why is that? Because the disease is progressive. It gets worse over time, never better. Permanent, progressive, and if untreated, fatal. My friend Craig says, permanent, progressive, and if untreated, fatal. Bottom of 175, during the next few years, I developed two distinct phobias. One was the fear of not sleeping, and the other was the fear of running out of liquor. Not being top of 176, a man of means, I knew that if I did not stay sober enough to earn money, I would run out of liquor. Most of the time, therefore, I did not take the morning drink, which I craved so badly, but instead would fill up on large doses of sedatives to quiet the jitters, which distressed me terribly. Occasionally, I would yield to the morning craving, but if I did, it would be only a few hours before I would be quite unfit for work. So if he drank, he couldn't really work. This would lessen my chances of smuggling some home that evening, which in turn would mean a night of futile tossing around in bed, followed by a morning of unbearable jitters. In other words, withdrawal from the alcohol. He was in withdrawal. During the subsequent 15 years, I had sense enough never to go to the hospital if I had been drinking, and very seldom did I receive patients I would sometimes hide out in one of the clubs of which I was a member and had the habit of, at times, of registering at a hotel under a fictitious name. But my friends usually found me and I would go home if they promised that I should not be scolded. So in other words, people are getting on him. What is this? Why do we have to go through all this BS of finding you under some name in a hotel why don't you quit drinking already? This is getting out of hand. Remember when Bill Wilson said his fr uh, terminated in a row and he became a lone wolf? The remonstrances of his friends, remonstrances are protestations. They're saying, hey, Bill, I want to do business with you, but every time I see you, you're drunk. 
Well, people don't like that, especially when you're going to be cutting into them or when you're dealing with their money. People get a little skittish about you being drunk. When you're talking about my money or my rear end, because that's what a proctologist operates on, I don't want you drunk. I would prefer getting someone sober. He could have killed somebody with that scalpel of his had he operated on them drunk. If my wife, I'm in the middle of 176. If my wife was planning to go out in the afternoon, I would get a large supply of liquor and smuggle it home and hide it in the coal bin, the clothes chute, over door jams, over beams in the cellar and in cracks in the cellar tile. I also made use of old trunks and chests, the old can container and even the ash container. The water tank on the toilet I never used because that looked too easy. I found out later that my wife inspected it frequently. I used to put eight or 12 ounces, eight or 12 ounce bottles of alcohol in a fur-lined glove and toss it onto the back airing porch. When winter days got dark enough, my bootlegger had hidden alcohol on the back steps where I could get it at my convenience. Sometimes I could bring it in my pockets, but they were, but they were inspected and that became too risky. I used also to put it in, up in four ounce bottles and stick several in my stocking tops. This worked nicely until my wife and I went to see Wallace Beery in Tugboat Annie, after which the pant leg and stocking racket were out. I'm wearing a stepping stones shirt today. And if I had a brain, which I don't, I would have worn one of my Dr. Bob's shirts that I have but I put on a stepping stone shirt instead, but that's okay. I'm going to recommend to you that before God closes your eyes, get your butt to Akron, Ohio. You can see the back airing porch. You can see the laundry chute. You can see it. And in the backyard of Dr. Bob's house, when you go there, there will be a cooler of soda pop and water and things like that. And then next door, you can go and you can buy a coffee cup that says, I had a drink at Dr. Bob's house. And you can buy all kinds of tchotchkes there and all kinds of chazerai, which is Yiddish for little keepsakes and little things. But you can buy that there, but they will give you a drink at Dr. Bob's house. It won't be alcohol, so don't get excited, but you will have a drink at Dr. Bob's house, 855 Ardmore Street in Akron, Ohio. So he's finally, he says, I will not take space to relate all my hospital or sanitarium experiences. So we're gonna stop there for today. And what I would like to do is I would like to take the last minute to please urge you as strongly as I can that if you are not signed up for the birthday in LA, the LAX Hilton, the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th of January, to please join us in Los Angeles. This is going to be a wonderful convention. I know many of the people that are speaking at this convention. The crew, the 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 uh, crew of people who are putting this on have worked tirelessly. The committee is working tirelessly to make this a wonderful convention for you. We're going to have everything starting Friday. I'm doing the big book study this year. Uh, my some of my friends are speaking, you know, whatever. But we're going to have an opening speaker on Friday night. We're gonna have Saturday all day, all manner of wonderful, wonderful subjects being covered. Uh, at lunch, there's gonna be a luncheon speaker. At dinner, there's gonna be a dinner speaker and a dance. And there's gonna be just wonderful things. Sunday is the sober eating workshop. Uh, I'm going to finish my big book study, closing speaker, raffles, clothing exchange. There's going to be a, a vision meet and greet. There's going to be sponsor sponsee meet and greet. There's going to be an opportunity for you to expand your God squad, meet new people, make new friends. You're going to love this. If you're scared, 
I understand that we are people who have a lot of social anxiety. We have a lot of fear of people. I get it. This is as safe a, an environment as you can get. This is a wonderful environment. It's like working with a, a really strong safety net. You're going to love it. Please, oabirthday.com, oabirthday.com. Please come. You deserve it. It's going to be a wonderful convention. Okay. I'm just going to write down where we are. But before I throw this back to, I think it's Sue or Yo, uh, I, I'm not sure. I think it's Sue that's going to do the, um, what do you call it? The questions and answers, but I'm not sure. But no, if you, if you asked a question last week, 